My name's Jimmy. Um, <clears throat> um, as you know, I've been gone a couple of weeks uh, with a group from Grace Lee Band uh, on a visit to Israel. So if you came this morning thinking that we're going to talk about Israel, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We are not. Uh, if you're interested in hearing a few of the, um, the stories of Israel, come Wednesday night and we'll, we'll talk more about it then. But now... My invitation to you is to turn back to or return with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, and let's continue our study. Um, I I will say this, uh, don't forget that announcement I made before I left about Gigi, the Growth and Grace Institute that uh, will start on the first Saturday in June, I think it's June the 4th. There are five uh, topics, five how-tos. The first one is on how to study the the Bible, so um, if you're interested, There'll be a trimester in the summer, one in the fall, and then one in the, the winter, spring, uh, co- different courses, um, uh, hopefully graduated, getting more and more thick as we move along. Uh, but you can come to one, you can come to none, you can come to all of them, it's, it's up to you. But they're going to be on Saturday mornings, five Saturdays, four Saturdays in June, one in July uh, for the first semester or trimester, whatever you want to call it, that's Gigi. And then... The new members class, which is this afternoon. You've got to be here about 345. Um, We take your picture, you fill out a form, and then the teaching starts at 4. Should be out of here by 6, something like that. And there's a break with with snacks. (laughs) All right, now you follow as I read from that which is inerrant. Um, You may recall that the last time I was with you, if you'll look at verse 11... Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. You may recall that the three weeks ago, my, my subject then was rest. Uh, the word rest is found nine times in those 11 verses, and we talked about rest uh, last time I was with you. Now we're at verse 12, and um, let me read you just two verses, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. That passage that I just read you, especially verse 12, is a very famous statement in Scripture. If you were taught to memorize Scripture in in your early um, involvements with the church, that was one verse that you probably memorized. Verse 12 is one about the Word of God being active. Um, uh, What I'm about to do is something that I I, I hope that you will not do. Uh, This is not the right way to study the Bible. Um, I'm about to lift verses 12 and 13 out of its larger context, and I don't like to do that. It's not a, it's not a good way to study your Bibles. I, I, I sought, in fact, I was, uh, originally, I was going to include that paragraph with the closing paragraph of chapter 4, and I, was, I worked on an outline even. I, I thought, okay, the Word of God, uh, this book, and then the Word of God, Christ, because that's what the next paragraph is about. But it just, wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to isolate 
verses 12 and 13 from their larger context, which is just not the right way to study the Bible. But I'm going to do it um, uh, because um, what's said here is, um, I think, so vitally important for the Christian church to hear. Um, And let me explain why I say that. Gang, the formal organizing principle of the Protestant Reformation is something known as sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase which means scripture alone. Now, but that's very helpful, Dr. Young, but I don't even know what you're talking about. The Protestant Reformation, I don't get any of that. Well, let me, let me just give you a little bit of the backstory, which I think might help. Um, if you're here today, you are probably a Protestant. Uh, you're a protester. You're protesting, uh, along with the rest of the Protestant world, um, something that was launched by a, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther back in 1517 when, when Luther nailed 95 theses on the church door of, uh, at, at Wittenberg, Germany, launching, uh, he, which is something he didn't intend to launch, but launching the Protestant Reformation. Um, and uh, in that, refer- in that to launching, you remember he had to uh, meet with the, the authorities of the Roman Empire and the, and the church in what was called the Diet of Worms, W-O-R-M-S. But please do not call it worms. Um, I'm not sure worms is right either, but don't call it worms. It's, it's, uh, it'll, it'll make you look uninformed. But it was at this big meeting where Luther makes his, his classic statement uh, out of which have been made movies. Books are written by this statement that makes, uh, Luther makes, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. You've heard of that. Well, guys, in that statement, he also says this before he says that. He says, my conscience is bound by the Scriptures. My conscience is not bound by you, it's not bound by my church, it's not bound by my preacher, it's not bound by the Pope. My conscience is bound by the scriptures and the scriptures alone. I have one single source of authority in my life, and it's not you, and it's not that preacher of yours either, and it's not the Pope. My one single source of authority is scripture, and unless I can be uh, uh, persuaded or proved wrong about my views, I will not budge. Here I stand I can do no other God help me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is considered the origin of the phrase sola scriptura. Scripture alone is my one single solitary source of authority. I look no place else. Not to my preacher, not to my church, not to the Pope. I look to Scripture. Sola scriptura. The single, formal, organizing principle of the entire Protestant Reformation is around that one statement, sola scriptura. Um, And ladies and gentlemen, that's not a slogan. It's a conviction. It's a conviction on the part of Martin Luther. It's my conviction. It's uh, so many of you have the same conviction. 
that, I, that ultimately the only source of authority I have is the Scriptures. Uh, and that's what gave rise to this thing called the Protestant Reformation. And, and I would say to you that even today, ladies and gentlemen, the, the grand and, and uh, glorious division that exists between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is still sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, so what's the, what's the big deal about this book? Um, people hate it. They have tried to overturn it. I, I can tell you numerous stories uh, in church history about people trying to stamp out this book, get rid of it, entirely burn it up, uh, destroy it. Um, but it's not a textbook. It's not a novel. It's not a manual. So then what's the big deal about this book? This one. Well, our text gives us four features, four characteristics, four statements of description of, um, of the nature of this book. And it's our text that answers, I, I would suggest to you, what's, what's the big deal about this book? Look at it, particularly in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, <clears throat> and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There they are. Four features, four characteristics uh, that, um, that, that explain why this, ladies and gentlemen, is unlike any other book. Let's look at them. Let's look at those four features. First of all, um, the first thing it says is that the Word of God is living. Now, let me tell you just a quick little Greek lesson here, guys. In the Greek language, um, the way that the authors of the Greek New Testament emphasized things was, because, was with um, location of words. The, the primary emphasis is always placed on the first word that you find in the Greek text. The other place of emphasis was at the end of, of, the, of the sentence. So if the, if the author wanted to emphasize something, he would, um, uh, he would rearrange the words. Word sequence meant nothing. It was, um, it was the, the location where the emphasis was, emphasis was to be found. If you had a Greek New Testament in your lap, you would find this out. You would discover that the first word that is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is the word living. It's the Greek word zone. It's living. Before it ever tells you what, it says to you, and it confronts you with living. You know, the, the King James, if you've got a King James Bible, such an unfortunate translation of the word, uses the English word quick, like as if the Bible were speedy. That, that's not what's being said here, ladies and gentlemen. The word is zone. It's living. This book is living. Gang, it has, it has life in it. Um, unlike all other books, this book contains, it, 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 it lives. The Word of God is, is alive. It's a living book. Other books can move you, but none can, can make that same claim that, that it's living. This is a book that wrestles with me. It's a book that convicts me. 
It's It's a book that comforts me. It's a book that corrects me. It's a book that has life in it. I don't make it live. I don't give it life. It has life in and of itself. <clears throat> and through all of my very excellent arguments to the unbelieving world about why I trust this book, ladies and gentlemen, that does, that's not the thing that makes it alive. It's alive as it stands on its own. And, and, and it does pretty well just by itself because it's living. When I um, was in Israel those past two weeks, I, I was walking by myself. I was alone um, on the Mediterranean Sea, and, and the, right there across from our hotel is a, is a beach. And I mean, it's a beach beach. It's a, just like in very, very sophisticated. Everything that you would imagine that's on a beach is at this beach right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And, and I was walking by myself, and I saw this group there uh, on the beach, and I just knew that they were Christians. Um, by, by the way, they handled themselves. They had a guy that was strumming a guitar, and uh, you, you know that makes you a Christian. Um, but but uh, I, I, they were handing out tracks, and um, um, I took one. And this is it. Um, and sure enough, they were they were converted Jews. Um, some people called them Messianic Jews, but they were Jews, uh, citizens of Israel, who have come to Christ. I'm not going to read you this whole brochure, but I want, you to, I want to read you one paragraph about what these converted Jews are saying to their unconverted friends there in Israel. Here's what they say. Therefore, take down from thy shelf the ancient scriptures, wipe the dust from its pages, and look again to that book of books. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever, and you will do well to pay attention to it. For this is the cornerstone that all else springs from, the light shining in a dark place. So, my brother, open the eyes of your heart and with urgency and humility examine for yourself what is written about our Messiah. That's what Jews are telling other Jews in Israel. Take that thing off the shelf. Dust off the dust on its pages and take a look at what it says about the Messiah. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is a book that lives. It's a living book. And so be very careful when you read it. Because, gang, the life that is in this book It just may pierce you. Years ago, when I was still working at Central Church, um, I I, I was the director of the singles ministry, and and one of the singles asked me if I would meet with his brother, uh, his younger brother. His brother was a mess. I mean, he was into everything, and it's... (laughs) He was into everything and then some. I mean, everything that you can imagine that how you can foul a life up, this young man was in it. And... um, he came to my office. I was more than happy to meet with him. He came to my office and um, sat on a couch across from me, and, and um, we began a dialogue. But you, you, from the opening gun, you could tell he was not very happy that he was there. Um, he had come, I guess, to please his brother, and certainly not me. And, and, and he was just snarly and, and uh, you know, it's not, not happy. 
And so at, at one point, and I really don't know exactly the sequence of the conversation, but at one point he began to tell me how much he didn't believe in this Bible, in this book. And he, um, he said, there's all kinds of myths in that book, all kinds of contradictions and errors that fill that book. And I learned this from my, from my friend R.C. Sproul. Um, uh, what, I, what I do when people say this to me, and you can say, well, that's not a very nice thing to do. Uh, you know, you know, I'll not do that. And I, you know, you might be right. But this is what I did, and, um, and I do it, I mean, not often, but anytime somebody says, you know, this book has just got full of errors in it. When, when they say that to me, I always do this. I took my Bible, and I threw it next to him. He was sitting on the couch, and I just threw it right where he was sitting. I just threw it next to him. I said, uh, show me one. Now, that's not the point. The point is, when I threw my Bible that landed right next to him on that couch, this young man goes, <gasps> he jumps back and he cringed. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? That's the right response. Because you see, ladies and my brother and sister in Christ, this is a book that is alive. It's not a dead letter. The grass withers and the flower fades. Those things die. But the word of our God endures forever. It's alive. It's living. We don't bring life to it. It imparts life to us. That's the first thing. The second thing the text says is that it's, and this is such a poor choice of English words, it's the word active, at least in the ESV. That's the, you might find the word, it's active. Gang, <clears throat> the, the Greek word is energes, uh, out of which we get our English word energy. I don't know why you would translate that active. It's a word that, that's talking about the, it, it's, it's powerful. It has energy in it. You remember in, in John 11 when Jesus went to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead? You remember that story? You know, Mary and Martha were so, oh, Jesus, if you'd have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so they take him to where he's buried and up in these, these tombs. And, and I, I saw a lot of those uh, while I was in Israel. And they're normally caves, and there's usually a whole bunch of them around. And um, <clears throat> So Jesus stands in front of the cave or the tomb where Lazarus was buried, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And one particular writer or hack that I read said the only reason that he said Lazarus is because if he hadn't said Lazarus everybody in the rest of those tombs would have come out of there but Lazarus comes walking out ladies and gentlemen why because the word is full of energy there's power in it you know Isaiah 55 talks about it doesn't it'll never return void John 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth because there's energy in this book. He imparts life to us through this book. The Bible is not God, ladies and gentlemen. But it is God's voice. And it is the effectual instrument that God uses to bring us to life. James chapter 1 verse 18. It should also be the effectual instrument in preaching and in counseling. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this book, this book has power in it. It's not a collection of thoughts for the day. 
As if I can drag it around and find myself a thought for the day so that I can run off to the office with a thought for the day in my head. No, ladies and gentlemen. It's living. It's powerful. The life in this book operates so powerfully, always accomplishing its intended purpose, so powerfully that it brings, it brings dead souls to life. It's living. It's powerful. The third thing that it says is that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice, not a one-edged sword. Two edges. This thing is all edge. It, it, it's got two edges to it. It, it. it doesn't say it's like a sword. It says it's sharper than a sword. It's, it's something that pierces. It, it, it goes to the conscience. We bleed. Because of wounds inflicted by this book. Gang, nothing kills sin like this book does. And, and, and it kills nothing except what it wants to kill. It's not like chemotherapy, which kills the cancer, but it also kills a whole lot of other things as well. This book only kills that which it, that, that needs to be killed. It's, it's, a, it's a book that, that gains access to those inaccessible places of my life and then pierces them, the thoughts and the feelings. Guys, this is, this is a frightening statement. Look at, look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Did you notice that? We're talking about a book and it uses the pronoun his. No creature is hidden from this mm, his. Because you see, God is so, so identified with his book. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Guys, every detail, every nuance of every detail of all that I am is known through this book. You may not know that I'm envious, but this book tells me that I am. It goes to the place that you can't go. And it tells me of my secrets, my thoughts of revenge. It tells me about my real motives. Oh, I can look really good in the actions that I perform before my church friends. When I am eat up with all kinds of selfish motive. And this book tells me which is which. Have you ever been sitting in a worship service and, and, you, um, and you think, why? why, that preacher, he's talking just to me. 
It's just, it's just, you know, me and him. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not that good. I'm not good enough to produce that. What happened on that occasion is the Holy Spirit uses the book that he wrote, and he comes, and he speaks, or he spoke, to you. Cutting through all the noise and exposing all of my vain excuses and leaves me exposed. Guys, you know, the, the longer I do this thing, this preaching thing, and I've been doing it over 40 years now, the longer I do it, the less confident I become. Well, there's certain things that I've learned about preaching, you know, how to time out a sermon or how to, how to make an outline of a text, etc. certain mechanics. But the longer I do this, the more I know that I do not have the ability to impart life to you. But this book does. And my only responsibility before you is to handle this book in such a way that it speaks and then does its powerful cutting work. There's one other thing, that the, the fourth thing that the text tells us about this book. It's that it discerns, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It's this book that separates the real from the phony. I'm, I'm not talking about the real people from the phony people. I'm not, it separates the real from the phony in me. Guys, don't you want to know that about yourself? Don't you want to know the truth about who you are? This book is such a gift. It's the thing that allows me to figure out what is the truth of my inner self. You know what? I can fool you. If I want to, I can fool you. but I can't fool this. It's the discerner. It tells me the things that are true and the things that are false. Hey, guys, do you know how the FBI trains its agents to detect or to, to spot counterfeit bills? It doesn't show them counterfeit bills. It shows them the real ones. 
you know, the tinsel strength of the paper and the numbers and the ink and all and the smell, you know. <clears throat> and if you know enough about the truth, you can spot a fake one in a heartbeat. That's what this book does for my soul. If I know enough about it, then at least I can know when I'm being a phony. Maybe you couldn't spot it. But I can. Because it told me. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we come to sit under this book, not on top of it. We don't tell it what to say. We find out what it says. And as God enables by the Holy Spirit, we then conform to it. Oh, my dear friends, let it critique you. Not your preacher. I have no right to. I'm as broken as you are. But let this critique you. You know, the, the, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, Psalm 1, is about this book. I hope you know that. But it pronounces a benediction, not on those who read this book. Blessed are those who read the book. It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are they who meditate. It's like a cow chewing its cud. That I take it in and I... I know on it. It's this book, ladies and gentlemen, that tells me the truth about myself. Don't you want to know that about yourself? I can't tell you that. I got opinions. But that's all they are. It's this book that is the discerner. Guys, this, this sword was plunged into Christ. He, he was a man with one book. He fulfilled every jot and every tittle contained in this book. His blood was biblene. He quoted it. He, he fulfilled it. He lived by it. He, he, he promised us that not one of the jots, not one of the tittles would ever go unfulfilled about this book. Thus, that's why, ladies and gentlemen, this book is such a big deal. And why every Protestant worth his salt knows that there's only one authority in their lives. Sola. Scriptura. One final thought and I'll quit. <clears throat> you don't need to turn in your Bibles, but think with me about Genesis 3. You know what Genesis 3 is? That's where uh, Adam and Eve and the garden and Satan and the apple and temptation and, and the fall. Genesis chapter 3. You remember that? 
Gang, you got to know this about Genesis 3. Satan's tactic, by the way, with Eve and with you, with us, Satan's tactic was to get Eve to interpret her world through her eyes. Um, he wanted her to draw conclusions based on the things that she saw. Verse 6 says this, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, Satan's tactic was to get her to interpret her world through her eyes as opposed to interpreting her world through her ears based on all that God had said to her. It was her eyes that stopped up her ears. She trusted more in her ability to interpret what she was looking at. Because as you know, (laughs) seeing is believing, ain't it? (laughs) That's the way we live, isn't it? Seeing is believing. She trusted more in her ability to interpret her world based on what she saw than she trusted what God had said. And the rest is history. Tragic history. (laughs) Well, I'm sure glad I don't do that. (laughs) My friend, how naive must you be to think you don't do that? You know, I've said this before. I don't care what the God of the liberal thinks about me. I don't care what the God of the Muslim thinks about me. I don't really care what your God thinks about me. But I care a whole whale of a lot about what this God thinks about me. Ladies and gentlemen, you have allowed your culture to tell you what to think about abortion. You have allowed your culture to tell you what you should think about homosexuality. You have interpreted your world through your eyes as opposed to book that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning my thoughts. Guys, this book not only tells us about our sin, it also tells us about the remedy that God has made available for our sin. And that remedy can be summarized in one word. Christ. Everything that my soul needs is to be found 
in Christ and Him crucified. And this book goes to extraordinary lengths to tell me over and over again about the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so let me close with the words that my Jewish brothers and sisters are saying to their friends on the beach of Tel Aviv at this very moment. Therefore, take down from thy shelf the ancient scriptures. Wipe the dust from its pages. And look again to this book of books. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Our Father, again, it is impossible for me to do the work that needs to be done. Um, would you, um, where I have erred in handling your word, would you stop up the ears of all who listen? But if I have handled correctly this book of books, would you use it in such a way to awaken us and to arouse slumbering souls and drive us once again to the book of books? While everything around us, all the grass and all the flowers are dying, this book lives on because it is your voice. Might we discover the great beauty that you have left behind in this book for us, telling us that though, however guilty we may be, there is a balm in Gilead in his name is Christ Jesus. Might he once again be seen in all of his beauty.